0: Well, good afternoon, thank you for listening today. Uh, This morning we had another drive-in service at Transit Drive-In, but I wanted to post this in case uh, the audio or video was hard to hear. I know that there's a lot of uh, wind on top of the roof there. Uh, Last week we had uh, some airplanes passing by, so I just wanted to post this uh, in case it's difficult to hear the morning one. James chapter 1, verse 19. from the world. James tells us in this passage that we are to be slow to speak. Have you ever been too quick to speak? Uh, I remember when I was about 10 years old, uh, my mother and grandmother and I were sitting on our back deck. I'm not sure what we were doing. We we're just kind of hanging out. And we had a decent amount of property behind our yard and our neighbor had a decent amount of property behind her yard. And uh, we looked back and we saw our neighbor kind of behind her yard uh, in the field. And it was kind of unclear where uh, she was in terms of if it was our property or her property. And we were kind of wondering what she was doing. She was an older lady. She usually stayed inside of the yard. We weren't sure exactly why she was back in the back behind the yard and what she was doing. And so my mother and grandmother were kind of talking about that. Um, and just, I can think out of curiosity, they mentioned, oh, I wonder if she's, is that our land or her land? Not for any particular reason, but at that point I thought that it would be wise to take matters into my own hands. So I got up and I yelled at the top of my lungs, hey lady, get off of our property. Almost immediately I knew that was a bad thing to do. That was not the words I should be speaking. To which this lady responded, shut up, you little brat. I knew I had made a mistake. I spoke before I thought about the consequences of my actions. And afterwards, my mother made me go over to the neighbor's house and to apologize for the way I would spoken to her. So I talked, I spoke before I thought about it, before I thought about the consequences. And I think we have a huge problem with that in our culture. We think and then we think about the consequences later. We're in a, uh, in a culture where speaking is prominent. Twitter has 500 million tweets per day. They have 200 billion per year. A day's worth of tw- tweets, one day's worth of tweets, could fill a 10 million page book. On average, there's 4.75 billion items shared each day on Facebook. There's 10 billion Facebook messages that are sent each day. 350 million photos are uploaded to Facebook each day. On YouTube, there are 500 hours of video per minute that are added. 82.2 years of content per day. 82.2 years of content in essence speaking per day and our words today are much more powerful than they were even in the past because in the past if somebody said something unless you were the president unless you were a famous person nobody was really listening that much apart from maybe your small circle of influence and so if you said something stupid it may be that it would harm a friendship, maybe it would harm some, a relationship in your family, but that's kind of where it might stop. But today, in our culture, all of us are public figures. Anytime we place something on Facebook, it's not just one or two people that see it, it's potentially hundreds or thousands or more that could see what we're saying. And the effects of that can be very devastating if we say the wrong things, if we're not careful with the way that we speak. And not only that, but in years past when we would speak to one another, we'd speak through face-to-face conversation or even on the telephone, and if we said something dumb, it may be forgotten maybe a half hour later by the person we spoke to, but now we have it immortalized in text messages that never go away, Facebook posts that could be there and be remembered for a long period of time. And so our words carry even more weight today than they ever have in the past. And they have the power to be devastating if we're not careful. A few years, a number of years ago in 2000, from August 24th to September 8th, 2000, there was a ginormous fire in South Dakota. Over 80,000 acres of valuable timber burned down. And firefighters had to fight this blaze for weeks. And there was a 46-year-old woman named Janice Stevenson, and she was charged with the arson of starting this fire. And her charge included a possible five-year prison sentence, a $250,000 fine, and potentially being responsible for the cost of the blaze. Federal, federal investigators who filed charges against Ms. Stevenson says she admitted stopping by the road on August 24th, lighting a cigarette, not putting that cigarette out, throwing it on the ground and not stopping the fire. And you think about that ginormous blaze, 80,000 plus acres of timber burned down. And it was started by a small little cigarette so is the power of words james tells us this later in james uh, chapter 3 verses 5 to 6 james says so also the tongue is a small member yet it boasts of great things how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness the tongue is set among our members staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell Words have incredible power and they can have devastating effects if we're not careful. They have the power to build up or to tear down. And the scary thing is that Jesus tells us that one day we will have to give account for each careless word that we've spoken. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 to 37, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I don't know about you, but to me, that is a really scary thought. Because we've all said things that were really, really dumb. And to think that we're going to have to one day give account of those things before God is frightening and sobering. And so as believers, we need to be super careful in how we use our words. And not just in speech, but in how we communicate to the world, whether that's through text messages, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever that may be, we need to be super careful that our words are not used to destroy. So James tells us we're to be slow to speak. He tells us, second, we're to be slow to anger. Now last July, before the coronavirus, before anyone had heard of George Floyd or Ahmed Arbery or any of the social unrest items that are part of our present narrative, there was a survey that was done by IBM Watson uh, and NPR. And in that survey, 84% of the people surveyed said that this generation of Americans are angrier than a generation ago. 42% of those polls said they were angrier in the past year than they had been further back in time. Anger is growing in our country. Now, when James talks about being slow to anger, I don't think in, in any sense that he's suggesting that we should never be angry. There are some things that should... Make us angry. There are some reasons that are justified to be angry. We see in the scripture that Jesus was angry at times. We should be angry when we see a man whose life is snuffed out by a police officer with his knee on his neck. We should be angry when the poor and the weak are oppressed. We should be angry when someone harms. A child, And so James is not talking about this emotionless, stoic existence that we're just supposed to float along through life and not be moved by anything that happens. He's not suggesting that at all. But he does say be slow to anger. So what does he mean by that? I I think of two images. Think of a tea kettle filled with water. And you put that tea kettle on the stove and you put the flame on it And even if you put it up hot, it's going to take a few minutes for that water to boil. And then even after it boils, it's going to maybe take a a little bit longer for the steam to start coming off uh, the, the front of the tea kettle. And so it takes some heat for it to get boiling and for steam to come out the top. But imagine that you take that tea kettle and filled it with gasoline. All it would take was be one spark, one, uh, fire, one bit of fire, and that tea kettle would explode into flames. And, and I think that's the, the image that James is talking about here, that we're supposed to be that tea kettle filled with water. We're to be slow to anger when the heat comes on us. And we're not to explode in rage and, and vengefulness. We're not to be a powder keg just ready to unleash on those around us. We're to be slow to anger. That shouldn't be our default response. Our default response should be love and grace. And yes, there are times when anger is appropriate, but it should be few and far between. It should be times when the flame is, is lit really, really hot or when the flame has been going for some time. There's a lot in the world today that maybe we as believers don't like. We can't give in to the bitterness and rage and anger that's around us. But then the question comes, what do we do when we do become angry? What do we do when, even if we are slow to anger, what do we do when we get to a point when we are angry and justifiably angry? Well, the one response is to take matters into our own hands, to try to make others pay. And when we're not interested, when we get there, we're not interested in a resolution, we're interested in making others pay for what they did. And I think that's part of what's happening this week in terms of the looting and the rioting. There are some who are peaceful, who are just longing for change and justifiably angry at what's been happening in terms of police brutality, but there are others who have gotten to a place where they're just like, we want to make people pay, we want to destroy everything, and so they go around looting and destroying things rather than constructively trying to fix the issue. Charles Duhigg writes this, Ordinary anger can deepen under the right circumstances into moral indignation, a more combustible form of the emotion, though one that can still be a powerful force for good. If moral indignation persists, however, and if the indig- indignant lose faith that the anger is being heard, it can produce a third type of anger, a desire for revenge against our enemies that privileges inflicting punishment over reaching a court. Inflicting punishment over reaching a cord. And we can get there very quickly. We can get to a place where we're not interested in fixing the situation, where we're not interested in peace. We just want to make that other person pay for what they did to us. And in a sense, it's the most logical thing to do from a human standpoint. We think an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If if somebody does something to us, we want to correspondingly hurt them in the same way that they hurt us. Yet when we do that, when we take vengeance and violence into our own hands, it co- just continues that cycle of violence. It doesn't bring us the satisfaction and the peace that we're longing for. And it will only make the wound in our hearts grow deeper. In Romans chapter 12, verse uh, 19. Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul says overcome evil with good. Overcome darkness with light. During the days of the desert fathers, a fourth century, um, which was a 4th century movement where uh, they were trying to renew the church, and so many people would kind of retreat from society and practice spiritual disciplines and uh, practice an intense spirituality. And there was this one uh, mystic named Sizos, and Sizos had a young uh, prodigy or a young um, me- person that he was mentoring and this young man came to him one day and he says i was hurt by my brother in christ and now i'm angry and want to avenge myself and this older wiser man sisso says uh, don't do that my child he tried to comfort him he says rather leave vengeance to god but the young christian refused to listen to Sissos. he became even angrier and louder and he said i will not quit until I get even. Finally, Siso saw that reason wasn't going to work with this young man. And so Siso said, well, let's pray about this, brother. After a pause, Siso offered this prayer. Oh God, apparently we no longer need you to take care of us since we can now avenge ourselves. From now on, we can manage our own lives without your help. When the young man heard this, he immediately repented and fell on his knees at Siso's feet. He cried out, Have mercy on me. I'm not going to fight my anger, or fight my brother anymore. So James says we're to be slow to anger. When we are angry, when we get to that place when we're righteously angry, we're to fight evil with good to fight darkness with light. So he says, be slow to speak, slow to anger. Finally, James says that we need to be quick to hear. The word for quick to hear, uh, the word for quick can also be translated without delay at once. Our first response when someone speaks is that we should listen. But oftentimes we fail to listen and that also can have devastating consequences. Many years ago during the war for independence, there was this battle called the Battle of Trenton between uh, George Washington and the American forces, and a man by the name of John Johann Rall and his Hessian former, uh, uh, f- regiments. And the Hessians were German soldiers who were hired to fight for the British Empire. Now, there were a lot of different tactics to why Washington won the battle. But there's one interesting story and one interesting twist uh, to what happened in this battle. Joanne Rale had received a communication, a piece of paper from a spy. And on that piece of paper that the spy gave him were the location of George Washington's armies. But he never looked at it. He put it in his coat pocket and never read it. Ironically, the note was found after he had died in the Battle of Trenton. A failure to listen can be incredibly costly. It can cause relationships to be broken. It can cause needless conflict. Uh, A few years ago, a relationship site called YourTango.com did a survey of 100 mental health professionals on the topic of divorce. And based on this survey, they they, they discovered a number of things. The top communication complaints when considering divorce were as follows. 70% of men blame nagging or complaining, followed by their spouse not expressing sufficient appreciation, 60%. 83% of women cite a lack of validation for their feelings and their opinions, followed by their spouse not listening or talking about himself too much, 56%. In essence, what these complaints have in common is not listening. Not listening to a partner's viewpoint, not listening to what they have to say, not listening to what is in their hearts. And as a culture, I believe we have a huge listening problem. We grew up in the remote control generation where we put on something on TV and if we don't like what we see, we change the channel. And I think sometimes we try to do the same thing when it comes to people and listening to them. If we're not interested in what they have to say, then we just check out. That's not even to to speak of the enormous distractions that we have with our telephones, social media, text messages, all these things that are warring for our time and our intention. And as a culture, we have trouble focusing and just listening to what people have to say. And as Christians, I think that we've failed in this area. I think that sometimes we feel like we have all the answers, and so we don't have to listen to what other people have to say. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said this, Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they're in the company of others, that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Many people are looking for an ear to hear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians because these Christians are talking where they should be listening. But he who cannot no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God too. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. And in the end, there is nothing left but spiritual chatter. I had a teacher in seminary who wrote a book on the spiritual disciplines, and the class I took from him was the spiritual disciplines. And so we had to read this book for the class. And the thing about this book was this book was very similar to the lectures. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't understand why I even have to go to class. I don't understand why I have to listen to what the teacher has to say because I have the book. I know the content. But there's a huge difference between reading something in a book and listening to somebody's heart. And I think in a similar way, sometimes Christians are like, I don't have to hear another person's perspective because I have the book. I know God's Word. I know what God has to say. So I don't have to listen to what other people have to say. But here's the thing. We cannot listen to God without listening to others. We cannot obey God's Word without listening. Specifically, we cannot love without listening. While the Bible tells us that love should be the framework for how we live, we cannot love our neighbor if we don't know what our neighbor's needs are. We cannot love our neighbor if we don't know our neighbor's story, if we don't know what their hopes and dreams and fears are. We can't love them. We can't love them if we don't know what they need. Now, I see three clear applications today for why listening is incredibly important. The first, of course, is the issue that's come to the forefront of our minds in the last couple weeks, and that's the, the issue of racial injustice and the protests that have been happening around the country. Now, uh, there's a lot of pain, hurt, and anger in the African-American community today. And I'm not talking about the extremists who go around raking buildings and and, and stealing TVs. Those are not people who uh, are looking for constructive change, but there's many who are peacefully protesting, who feel hurt, who feel powerless, who feel like they don't have any voice. Uh, i heard of a pastor in our area uh, african-american pastor uh, who recently said he didn't believe that white pastors were interested in in hearing his story or something to that effect and how sad is that how sad is that that they would feel like they aren't hurt i think that it's hard for some of us to understand maybe i was talking to a couple of friends this week and uh, we were talking about the protests that were happening, and uh, all, of, uh, all of us who were talking, uh, we had never seen a clear example of someone who was African-American being treated poorly because of their race. We had never uh, directly experienced that per se. And so t- sometimes we have a hard time understanding that, and maybe we, uh, because we haven't experienced it or seen it, we assume that it doesn't exist. And so we don't listen to the voices of our brothers and sisters who are crying out. And I think the church needs to listen. Listen to other people's perspective. Listen to the pain and the hurt that they're experiencing. Second, in terms of the coronavirus, there are many different opinions in our culture and in our church. Now, the range of opinions, even in our church, is uh, on the one hand, you have people who are super afraid of the coronavirus, who uh, are not even leaving their house or or very rarely leaving their house for any reason. And then you have other people who would say that it's uh, essentially a hoax or Uh, dramatically overblown and not something that we should worry about. And you have these two perspectives warring in our culture, and then you have a number of people in between. And and we need to be careful as a culture, and especially as a church, that we listen to one another, that we don't condescend another person's viewpoint, that we don't quarrel with other people, that we respect their view, even if we don't necessarily agree with it, that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that maybe we do things that maybe we feel like we shouldn't have to do because of Christ, because of our love for those around us, because of our love for the body of Christ. We need to listen to other people. We need to listen to all of our stories and we need to respect and honor other people's perspectives, even if we don't agree with them. Finally, there are needs all around us. But we can't know about those needs, unless we're listening. In a climate that we're living in, I believe that people are longing for connection. They're longing for someone to hear their story. They're longing for someone to care enough to be interested in them. So we need to be attentive to people's needs. There's a story that's told by Anton Chekhov called The Lament. And it's a simple story told about an old man who drives a horse and buggy for hire. And recently his son has passed away in a uh, terrible tragedy. And he's longing to tell someone about his son. And so he goes on a ride across the town with, and a, a wealthy man steps into the carriage. And the old man says, My son, my son, let me tell you about my son. But this busy man doesn't have time to listen. And then another man comes into his carriage, wants to be driven to the other side of the city. And again, the old man starts saying, my son, my son, let me tell you about my son. But again, the second man doesn't bother to listen. At the end of the day, having no one to listen to him, the old man returns to the stables. He unhitches his horse. And as he begins to brush the horse down for the night, the old man begins to tell the store, The horse, my son, my son, and then he tells the horse, tragic story. We can't listen. We can't love unless we're listening. We can't love unless we're listening. And as believers in Jesus, we need to be at the front of the line of those who provide a listening ear. Even if we don't agree with everything that people say as we learn other people's perspectives. We may not agree with those perspectives, but we need to be able to listen. We need to be able to validate and uh, hear their story, even if we don't agree uh, with, with the outcome ultimately. Yet listening will never be enough. Verse 21 says that we should put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the implanted word. As believers, we need to listen to other people's stories, yes, but it can't stop there. We need to also obey God's word. James talks about being doers of the word and not hearers only. He talks about a man who goes and looks into the mirror and then immediately after he leaves uh, from looking in the mirror, he forgets what he looks like. It made no difference in his life. It made no impression on him. James states that religion that doesn't make a difference in one's life is not genuine. He says that if anyone thinks that he's religious but doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, deceives himself. He goes on to state that religion that is pure and undefiled is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep, one unstained, uh, keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, religion that's Profitable involves action. God calls his people to act. And while we can't listen without loving, we also can't listen without acting. We must not listen without acting, ladies and gentlemen. In his book, When a Nation Forgets God, Erwin Lutzer retells one Christian story of living in Hitler's Germany. The man wrote this, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it. Because what could anyone do to stop it? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning we could hear the whistle in the distance, then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew that we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. Their screams tormented us. We knew the time the train was coming, and when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices. We heard the screams. We sang more loudly, and soon we heard them no more. Years have passed and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear the train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. Imagine that. That the church sang louder so they wouldn't have to hear the cries of the oppressed going to concentration camps. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to listen and we need to act. We need to act. We need to do our best to right injustice, to care for the orphan, the widow, the powerless, the poor, those who are struggling. Karl Barth, a great theologian, once said this, take your Bible and your newspaper and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible." As believers in Jesus, we need to be aware of what's going on in the world and we need to listen to those around us. We need to listen to other people's stories, listen to their perspectives, and then interpret what we listen to what we gain from that through the lens of God's Word. And as we do that, we can pray that God would lead us to the Scriptures to apply to that specific situation that we're dealing with and that the Holy Spirit would give us the words to say and He would give us the direction that we need to act. And so we need to listen and we need to act. And I believe as Christians... We always stand at a crossroads. James gives us two choices. He says if we're quick to speak and quick to anger, the result is destruction. It's destruction because it leads to broken relationships. And yet he gives us the promise that when we receive the word of God, when we're doers of the word, obeying the will of God, we'll be blessed. And earlier he says that we'll be saved. And when he's talking about our lives being saved. He's not talking about being saved from hell and in a salvific sense. He's talking about being saved from destruction. Because if we're using our words carelessly, if we're prone to anger, then it's going to wreak havoc in our life and destruction is going to follow us wherever we go. And so the question is will the church be listening to the world? And will the church be acting on God's word? Because we cannot love without listening. And we must not listen without acting.